Hello there. After much toil and tribulation, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 30. Where have I been, you ask? The answer is, busy. What with two moves, starting new jobs, and the addition of a little one to the layman's historian family, things have been rather hectic on the home front over the past few months. However, I want you to know that I did not forget about you. Even if I could contemplate abandoning the podcast before finishing the story, perish the thought, I could not bear to leave my main man Hannibal staring forlornly across the Ebro, wondering what might have been. So, as penance for my long absence, I give you three episodes in quick succession, each one a special, let's say. The first covers the writers and sources of the Punic Wars, the second will be a brief overview of the Polybian Roman army, and the last will be, you guessed it, an overview of the Carthaginian army under Hannibal right before he crossed the Ebro. After these, the stage will be set for Hannibal's one-man war with Rome. But before I get ahead of myself, let's start with the sources we have for the Punic Wars. First, let's address the elephant in the room, pun intended. You may be thinking, sources for the Punic Wars? Boring. Not so. The men who wrote down the history of Rome, and specifically the Punic Wars, form a rather eclectic bunch of personalities, and the fact that their writings have been preserved, more or less, is oftentimes due to what seems like pure luck more than anything else. Thus we know things such as the numbers of Hannibal's army when he crossed the Rhone, due to a seemingly offhand remark from one of the minor historians of the period. Besides the maddening fragility of our sources, there's the added benefit that looking at how history is made reminds us that history is much more an art than it is a science. So we begin with Q. Fabius Pictor. Dubbed the most ancient of our writers by no less a source than Livy, and credited by Cicero as one of the founders of Roman historical writing, Pictor's momentous History of the Romans served as the bedrock for the accounts of many later Greek and Roman authors. Unfortunately, despite being the foundational work of Roman historiography, The original text of Pictor's work has been lost to us over the centuries, and we only have a paltry selection of references, quotations, and excerpts to fall back on. Of these 32 excerpts which have survived, most are summaries, paraphrases, and one-line references. There are also 20 testimonia, general comments on Pictor's history or his life, which also survive leaving us with a random assortment of information regarding what could be Rome's first native historian. As if this wasn't bad enough, most of these excerpts or testimonia are stripped of their original context, and thus there is no way to verify what Pictor meant by these statements. In spite of this dour outlook, we do know certain information about this elusive historian. Born into the Gens Fabii clan of Rome, Pictor belonged to the patrician class of ancient and elite Roman families. Indeed, Pictor could boast of being a cousin to the famous Q. Fabius Maximus the Delayer, who, as we shall see, matched wits with Hannibal himself in Italy. Nonetheless, 
The little we know of Pictor's military career shows that he did not share in his more illustrious cousin's glory. He served as a junior officer in the campaigns in Liguria sometime in 225 BC, and may have held some higher military commands later, but he never attained any remarkable victories or triumphs on the northern frontier. Perhaps his lackluster military career propelled him to write his history as a sort of substitute for military or political achievements. Regardless, Pictor's account would have been invaluable since he was a contemporary of the great events of the Second Punic War. A senator around the time of the Battle of Cannae, Pictor stood at the heart of Roman governance and politics at the moment of her greatest crisis of soul. Due to his high rank, he had access to the pontifical tables and other state records, which further lends his account a high degree of credibility. Soon after the Battle of Cannae, Pictor led a delegation to Delphi to question the Greek god Apollo about what Rome should do in its crisis, one of the few times fate thrust Pictor squarely into the limelight. He may also have been instrumental in bringing the cult of Apollo to Rome, since we know that he had a great affinity for Greek culture and customs. Unsurprisingly for a male Roman aristocrat of this time, Pictor was patriotic to a fault, emphasizing Roman victories and the courage, good faith, and discipline of the Roman legions while minimizing their losses, a point for which Polybius criticizes him regularly. His love of Rome remains clearly on display from the fragments and commentary which have come down to us, as well as his conservative viewpoint of the world, once again not surprising considering his social class. Thus it is likely that the tendency of Roman historians to emphasize the wisdom of the senators as opposed to the will of the people goes back to Pictor. Although love of country and reverence for aristocracy may in part explain the bias in Pictor's account, it is his extensive knowledge of Greek culture that puts an interesting twist on his history. Likely written soon after Cannae, Pictor probably composed the work with a very specific purpose in mind, to hold the Greek cities of Magna Graecia, Sicily, and Greece herself to the Roman side of the war. This explains Pictor's narrative, beginning in the mythological past with Aeneas, the son of Troy and father of the Romans, and carrying the history all the way to contemporary events. Pictor intended to demonstrate Rome's legitimacy in the conflict as opposed to Carthage, by showing that Rome had the same ideals and even the same origins as the Greeks, that they were parallel civilizations locked in the same titanic struggle against the barbarian Carthaginian outsider. The fact that Pictor composed his history in Greek as opposed to Latin strengthens the argument regarding his intended audience, and his work would serve to remind the Hellenic world that the Romans were no mere barbarians, but cultural kinsmen whose representative author, Pictor himself, could be placed on par with any rival Greek writer who chose to tackle Roman history. Yet even though Pictor's account was likely intended first for a Greek audience, he did not forget his own countrymen. His emphasis on Roman virtue and past victories snatched from the jaws of defeat was intended to strengthen a Roman nobility 
which might have begun to doubt its destiny. Rome had seen dark days before, the defeats by Gauls, Samnites, Pyrrhus, and Hamilcar, but she had emerged not only victorious, but the stronger for it. With Hannibal undefeated and ravaging Italy, and Rome's allies wavering or defecting, the Romans needed a unifying idea to rally behind, and Pictor's history gave it to them. By welding a conglomerate sense of shared community, culture, and history together, Pictor's work gave Rome her rallying cry to continue the war against Hannibal. In light of this, we should not be surprised that Pictor's history gives greater credence to Roman arms than to those of the hated Carthaginians, but we should be aware of it moving forward, especially since Pictor's writings likely served as the foundation for the histories which followed him. If we know little of Q. Fabius Pictor, we know even less of his near contemporary, L. Cincius Alimentus. A member of the Patricians, this time of the Cincia clan, he fought actively in the Second Punic War, commanding two legions as praetor in Sicily in 210 BC. At some point early in the war, he was captured by the Carthaginians and held as a prisoner for several years. During his captivity, he had opportunities to confer with Hannibal himself regarding the military situation, and it was from the Carthaginian general that he learned detailed information regarding how many men Hannibal had when he crossed the Rhone and his route through the Alps. Alimentus's personal knowledge of Hannibal and the precious information he learned from him made his history an invaluable source to his successors. Unfortunately for us, aside from a few fragments, his work comes down to us only through the medium of later historians. Following Pictor and Alimentus, a number of other minor Roman and Greek historians wrote histories on the Punic Wars, too many to list here. But one name stands out from them all, M. Porcius Cato. Unlike Pictor and Alimentus, we know a good deal about Cato's life thanks to the biographies dedicated to him by his successors. Born in 234 BC, Cato came from a plebeian farming family which had been virtually unknown in the early days of the Republic. Termed a novus homo, or new man, by his fellow Romans, a term typically synonymous with upstart, Cato would soon prove that humble beginnings could not hold back natural talent. Gray-eyed with a ruddy complexion, he was a tenacious and uncompromising man, as shown by the following description written by a poet who obviously had no love for him. Porcius, who snarls at all in every place, with his gray eyes and with his fiery face, even after death will scarce admitted be, into the infernal realms by Hecate. Besides his savage appearance, Cato became infamous for his Spartan lifestyle, his meanness, and his remarkable courage. A soldier from 17 years old onward, he fought in several major engagements in the Punic Wars and served in the government for the majority of his political career, making him a prime contemporary source for events. We will cover more of Cato at a later date, since he looms large in the story of the Second, and especially the Third Punic War. For now, it is enough to say that this ornery Roman senator, possessed with a marked distaste for all things Greek and foreign, 
which permeated, or in his words, corrupted, Rome at this time, wrote an account of the history of Rome called Origines, which emphasized that the Romans owed their rapid rise and success to the old Roman values that Cato preached so strongly, endurance, discipline, and hard work. Thus it is unsurprising that the fragments of Cato's histories which survive are even more pro-Roman than his predecessors, highlighting Rome's obvious moral superiority in the wars as contrasted with the Punic faith of Carthage. The fact that he wrote his history in Latin as opposed to the more universal literary language of Greek also demonstrates his pride in his native country and confidence that it bore well any comparison with the more established Hellenes to the east. Besides actual histories, a number of poets composed long poems memorializing the conflicts with Carthage, the most famous of which was Cornelius Naivus. A veteran of the First Punic War and contemporary of the Second, Naivius wrote an epic poem which covered the history of Rome from its mythical beginnings around Troy down through to Naivius's own time. Although little survives of the poem now, it was apparently very influential in its day, and doubtless was cited by many later historians and writers. Before we get to the two major authors of the Punic Wars, we must briefly touch on four men who must receive an honorable mention. The first is our old friend Diodorus Siculus, whom we have met several times before. Born in Agerium in Sicily, and later settling in Rome in 56 BC, Diodorus wrote a monumental history in 40 books, which covered the story of Greece, Italy, Egypt, Mesopotamia, North Africa, Arabia, and India, from the mythical era to the time of Julius Caesar. As a Sicilian Greek, Diodorus brings a unique perspective to the list of pro-Roman aristocrats, and he exhibits a certain independence of mind when recounting the wars of Carthage, Syracuse, and Rome. Coming from Sicily, he was likely well aware of the costs the Sicilian inhabitants had paid, first in their struggles with Carthage, and later in the Roman conquest. In the few portions of his work that survive on the Punic Wars, Diodorus does not hesitate to highlight the faults of both parties, Roman and Carthaginian, in his account. He especially dwells on the faithlessness and opportunism of Rome, presenting a stark contrast to the picture of a mild, just, and beneficent conqueror presented by the Romans themselves. Instead, Diodorus goes out of his way to emphasize the brilliance and cleverness of Greeks like the general Xanthippus and the inventor Archimedes, who were caught up in the Punic Wars, which, given his Greek heritage, is unsurprising. Although his work offers a valuable alternative perspective to the numerous pro-Roman historians, since much of it has unfortunately been lost, it is difficult to determine how much is true and how much is colored by Diodorus's own apparent hostility towards Rome. The fact that he composed his work nearly 150 years after the events also casts some doubt on his narrative. A fellow Greek and contemporary of Diodorus, the Greek biographer Plutarch wrote an extensive series of accounts chronicling the lives of famous Roman and Greek statesmen, soldiers, and philosophers in his parallel lives. 
Since Plutarch's purpose in his work was to highlight the desirable and undesirable traits of his chosen men, he tends to leave out accounts of battles and instead emphasize the much more human characteristics and foibles of his subjects. Thus we find him recounting the anecdote of Hannibal's joke before the Battle of Cannae, a joke which I will not spoil here. Like Diodorus, he also took pains to highlight the success of his fellow Greeks, and it is due in part to Plutarch that we have such an entertaining account of Archimedes' inventions and contraptions at the siege of Syracuse. However, the fact that these details do not appear in our earlier authors presents some concern that Plutarch could possibly have made these events up to fit his narrative purpose. Additionally, certain mistakes and misquotes imply that he often wrote hastily or quoted from memory, increasing the likelihood that some errors were included in his work. However that may be, Plutarch's lives of Fabius Maximus, Marcellus, and Cato the Elder offer unique insights into the human aspects of many characters in the Punic Wars. As a side note, we are also indebted to him for our knowledge of old Timoleon, to whom, as we discussed in episode 8, Plutarch devoted an entire chapter in his parallel lives. Following Plutarch, Appian, a Greek from Alexandria in the early 2nd century AD, compiled a history of Rome which ran from the time of the Roman kings to the reign of the emperor Trajan. Unlike his predecessors, Appian's treatment of the Punic Wars, though prominent, appears rather disorganized and spotty, and he seems to focus on relatively minor events of local consequence while leaving glaring omissions of the more important moments of the war. Besides having a clear pro-Roman bias, Appian's sources appear muddled at best, making it difficult to determine how much we should rely on him. This is the more unfortunate since he is often our only source for certain crucial periods of the late Roman Republic, especially the Third Punic War, since his is the only account which has survived in its complete and continuous form. The final historian to touch on before we reach our two major sources, Cassius Dio is another writer whom we have met before. A Roman senator who served as consul during the reign of Severus Alexander in 229 AD, Dio wrote a massive 80-volume history of Rome, which covered almost a thousand years of history, from the date Aeneas first set foot in Italy, all the way down to the reign of his benefactor, Severus Alexander. Written in Greek, the work took him over 22 years of research and writing. Unfortunately, much of the portions covering the Punic Wars only survives in a summarized format, through the writings of a Byzantine monk named Zonaras, who quoted Dio at length in his own writings. From what has survived, it is apparent that Dio portrayed the Romans in a very positive light and had a pronounced taste for rhetoric in addition to a tendency to embellish. Along with Roman historians Tubero and Valerius Maximus, Cassius Dio is one of our sources for Regulus's battle with the dragon at the Bergratus River which was covered in episode 25. Last, but certainly not least, we come to the two main heavyweights among the historians of the Punic Wars, Polybius and Livy. Both of these men, 
one Greek, one Roman, contributed so immensely to our understanding of the Punic Wars that, had one of them been lost, our knowledge of this period would be but a tithe of what it is. We will begin with the historian who was first chronologically, Polybius. Polybius hailed from the city of Megalopolis, a cosmopolitan town which boasted a theater which could hold 20,000 people, as well as being the home place of several prominent statesmen in the history of Hellenistic Greece. Situated in a valley nearly in the center of the Peloponnese, Megalopolis was also rumored to be a battleground of the famous Titanomachy, the ten-year war of the Greek gods led by Zeus against his father Kronos and the Titans. As the most famous of the sons of Megalopolis, Polybius would serve as chronicler for the wars between two later-born titans, Rome and Carthage. A member of the aristocratic elite, Polybius enjoyed a rapid rise in his political career once he came to full manhood. Megalopolis was one of the major members of the Achaean League, a confederation of Greek cities which maintained a precarious independence between the chaotic fighting of the Diadochi kingdoms surrounding it. Polybius's father, Lycortus, had served for multiple terms as the strategos, or general of the entire league, effectively functioning as the president of the federation. With such sterling credentials, Polybius should have been set for life. Following in his father's footsteps, Polybius marked himself out for early distinction as a representative of the League. He bore the funeral ashes of Philopomion, a hero of the Achaean League, in the latter's state funeral, was selected as an envoy for an important mission to the Ptolemaic court in Egypt, and was elected to the office of Hipparch, or Cavalry Commander, the second highest position in the League, at 30 the youngest age at which he could be eligible for such a post. The League's highest position, that of Strategos, seemed just within reach, when Polybius's life took a drastic turn. In 168 BC, with a flurry of swift and brutal strokes, Rome crushed the Macedonian king Perseus at the Battle of Pydna, securing undisputed hegemony over Greece. Although a nominal ally of the Romans during the Macedonian Wars, the Achaean League had exhibited rather lukewarm support, preferring to hedge its bets between the two combatants. Indeed, Polybius's father had always advocated a strong stance of neutrality between the giants which sandwiched the Achaean League between them. This lack of enthusiasm would come back to haunt his son when Rome emerged triumphant over Macedon. Famously paranoid when at war, Rome often exhibited an all-or-nothing approach when dealing with states on the periphery of the combat. Either you were with her or against her. There was no middle ground. To make matters worse, by the time Rome won the Battle of Pydna in 168 BC, she had been at war with Macedon no less than three times in the last 30 years. Her vengeance would be pitiless. Rome broke the kingdom of Alexander the Great into four small republics tributary to herself. Seventy cities allied to Macedon in Epirus were sacked, 
and 150,000 people sold into slavery. Even Rome's allies, like Rhodes, Pergamon, and the Achaean League itself, suffered for their unenthusiastic support, with fines and deportations of prominent men as hostages. Pro-Roman factions in these cities seized the opportunity to rid themselves of their political opponents. In Megalopolis, Callicrates, Polybius's arch-nemesis, placed the Hipparch's name on a list of those to be delivered to the Senate as a hostage. Thus, soon after the Battle of Pydna, Polybius, along with a thousand other Achaeans, found himself shorn of his honorary titles and shipped off to Rome as a prisoner. Though his change of fortune seemed dire, Polybius's condition improved drastically upon arriving in Rome herself. An aristocratic, scholarly man with a talent for horseback riding and hunting, Polybius soon made friends among the patricians in Rome, including one of the most important figures of the day, Scipio Aemilianus, son of the victor of Pydna, Aemilius Paulus, and adopted grandson of the great Scipio Africanus. Under the patronage and protection of the most famous Roman families of the day, Polybius enjoyed considerable freedom as a hostage, including frequent hunting trips with fellow Greek hostages, such as the Seleucid prince Demetrius, as well as the privilege of reviewing the Scipio's family library and correspondence for his new book, The Histories. Is there anyone on earth who is so narrow-minded or uninquisitive that he could fail to want to know how and thanks to what kind of political system almost the entire known world was conquered and brought under a single empire, the Empire of the Romans, in less than 53 years, an unprecedented event? So Polybius begins his histories. Predominantly written while he was a hostage in Rome, the histories originally comprised 40 books, of which sadly only five survive intact, along with fragments and excerpts of the remaining 35. In his histories, Polybius seeks to chart the rise of Rome from 220 BC, the date at which he believed that history began to run together into a single coherent narrative culminating in the Roman Empire, to 146 BC. Polybius addresses his history to the educated Greeks of the Peloponnese and beyond, stating that it is his goal to convey how Rome succeeded so rapidly and so thoroughly through the excellence of her constitutions and institutions. Polybius marks himself out as different from the other ancient historians by offering his own cohesive theory on the art of writing history. In Polybius's view, the true historian must do three things. Study the written sources which precede him, perform personal fieldwork, including interviewing available witnesses for first-hand accounts, and finally, gain practical experience in politics and war. Of these three, Polybius placed the greatest value on practical experience, and he regularly lambasts the historians who preceded him for their deficiency in this respect. Just as it is impossible for someone who lacks military experience to write well about warfare, it is impossible for someone who has never acted in the political sphere or faced a political crisis to write good political history. 
Nothing written by authors who rely on mere book learning has the clarity that comes from personal experience, and so nothing is gained by reading their work. For without its educational element, history is altogether uninspiring and useless. To Polybius, the best historian must be able to make critical judgments about all information, written and oral, which he encountered in his writing. And the only one qualified to make such judgments was the experienced soldier politician who had had to make such choices in real life. By his own criteria, Polybius was uniquely well qualified for the role of historian. Besides his past achievements in the Achaean League, Polybius performed an active role in Roman society, serving as a military and political advisor to Scipio Aemilianus during the Romans' campaign in Spain and North Africa. If this was not enough, Polybius traveled extensively throughout the burgeoning Roman Empire, covering Spain, Numidia, the Alps of northern Italy, Egypt with her illustrious capital Alexandria, and even sailing beyond the Straits of Gibraltar to the Atlantic coasts of Africa. Along the way, Polybius adhered to the second tenet of his theory of writing history, questioning and cross-examining countless first-hand witnesses to the events he wrote about. He writes, Events take place simultaneously all over the world, but it is impossible for one person to be in more than one place at the same time, and it is equally impossible for him personally to visit every part of the world and see what is special about them. His only option is to question as many people as possible to believe those who deserve belief, and to be a good judge of what he hears. Among a plethora of more mundane informants, Polybius interviewed senior Roman statesmen such as Gaius Laelius, friend and lieutenant to Scipio Africanus, the Numidian king Massinassa, who fought alongside the Carthaginians and Romans in the Second Punic War, and Carthaginian veterans and statesmen who had known Hannibal himself. Polybius even mentions that he interviewed witnesses who had seen Hannibal's passage through the Alps, and that he had covered Hannibal's march through the Alps himself to verify the great Carthaginian's route. In addition to all this, Polybius also proudly states that he had personally studied an inscription left by Hannibal in Italy, describing his troop numbers and composition. Polybius supplemented his own personal fieldwork with a rigorous study of written sources of Roman and Greek historians, including the forementioned account of Fabius Pictor, as well as Roman state records. It is from these Roman state archives that Polybius reports the various early treaties between Carthage and Rome, which we covered in episode 4. Interestingly, Polybius also apparently had access to various Carthaginian sources, including a history written by Sosilus, Hannibal's Greek tutor who followed him to war. Polybius also had access to the history of Philenus of Agrigentum, who wrote a history of the First Punic War from the Carthaginian point of view. Since next to no Carthaginian sources have come down to us for the Punic Wars, Polybius's access to these pro-Carthaginian histories offers an intriguing glimpse into a topic which is typically dominated solely by Roman and Greek authors hostile to the Carthaginian outsiders. Whatever Polybius's faults, 
outspokenness was not one of them. An aristocrat who had seen and participated in many of the great events of his day as a general, politician, and explorer, Polybius gives his opinion freely on a variety of topics, which is a great gift to us. His innate confidence and curiosity seeps through the pages of the histories, and his narrative is regularly broken up by fascinating tangents covering topics as varied as the effect of music on human nature, comparisons between Greek and Roman palisades, the geographical layout of Sicily, a theory on the flow of water from the Black Sea through the Hellespont, and of course, the right way to write history. In a famous chapter which secured him a place in political science courses ever since, Polybius discusses the constitutional framework of the Roman Republic, where he discusses how Rome's mixed constitution, balancing as it did monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, allowed Rome to thrive and flourish even in times of great crisis. This chapter, by the way, had a profound influence on the founding fathers of the United States, especially John Adams, who cites Polybius extensively. Polybius firmly believed in the immense usefulness of history, writing in his opening paragraph that there is no better corrective to, of human behavior than knowledge of past events. Not only is there no more authentic way to prepare and train oneself for political life than by studying history, but there is also no more comprehensible and comprehensive teacher of the ability to endure with courage the vicissitudes of fortune than a record of others' catastrophes. To render the study of history useful, History must be made clear. Throughout his work, Polybius constantly inserts introductions, summaries, recaps, cross-references, and explanations. He takes great pains to keep the reader abreast of what has been covered or what is about to be covered. And in order for history to be clear, it must also be truthful. Thus Polybius criticizes the historians who precede him for clouding their accounts with their own biases and altering or minimizing facts to adhere to their own narratives. Explaining why he took such time to thoroughly chronicle the First Punic War, Polybius writes, Another equally important factor that moved me to linger over this war was the failure of the historians Philenus and Quintus Fabius Pictor, who are widely held to be the best authorities on the war, to have provided us with a sufficiently accurate description of it. Their lives and characters give me no reason to think that they deliberately falsified their accounts, but I do think that they behaved rather like people who are in love, in the sense that, because of their biases and overriding loyalties, Philenus always has the Carthaginians acting sensibly, honorably, and courageously, and the Romans doing the opposite, while Fabius does the same the other way round. Now, although there is no reason to dispense with such partiality in other areas of life, for instance, loyalty to friends and country are good qualities, as is having the same enemies and friends as one's friends. When a man tries to take on the role of historian, he must put all such considerations out of his mind. He often has to speak well of his enemies, and even honor them with words of undiluted praise when their actions demand it. And he often has to challenge and censure his closest friends unforgivingly when their errors suggest this is appropriate. An animal is completely useless if it loses its eyesight, 
And in the same way, history without truth has as little educational value as a yarn. That is why a historian should not hesitate either to condemn his friends or praise his enemies, and should not worry about praising and blaming the same people at different times. After all, it is as impossible for men of action to always get things right as it is unlikely that they will constantly go wrong. We have to stand back from their actions and assign the appropriate judgments and opinions in our works of history. In his stringent quest for the truth, Polybius deplored the habit of historians to insert details and gloss over events in their narratives, especially the ancient tendency to make up speeches before battles. Although it is relatively easy to point out the logistical problems of giving a pre-battle speech to thousands of men along a several-mile-long front, ancient historians regularly report rather rousing and detailed accounts of what generals said to their men just before battle was joined. Predictably, most of these accounts are likely fictitious. The Greek historian Thucydides famously admitted as much, saying that even if he was present at his speech, it was difficult to recall exactly what was said, and thus he would put words to the ideas he remembered the speaker trying to convey, filling in the gaps, so to speak. Polybius typically rejected this as a valid way to write history, preferring instead to report as near as possible what was actually said. He writes, a historian should not use his narrative to astound his readers with sensationalism, nor should he make up plausible speeches and list all the possible consequences of events. A historian should leave these things to tragic poets and should focus exclusively on what was actually done and said, even if some of these facts are rather unexciting. History and tragedy do not serve the same purposes. On the contrary, it is the job of the tragic poet to astound and entertain his audience for a moment by means of the most convincing words he can find. But it is the job of a historian to instruct and persuade his readers for all time by means of deeds that actually took place and words that were actually spoken. The object in the first case is to create a plausible fiction in order to beguile an audience. In the second case, to write what is true in order to educate the reader. Despite his strong condemnation of sensationalism in history, Polybius still allows for what by modern standards would be a relatively loose reporting of the speeches he lists. His speeches are typically in his own style and wording, and he often does not report the entire speech, but selects the important bits. And when the temptation comes... Even Polybius could not resist giving Hannibal a detailed speech to his men before battle, a contradictory, if pardonable, offense. On the whole, though, Polybius adhered to his own rigorous standards. His surviving work offers us what is arguably the best researched and best recorded history from antiquity. His unrivaled access to numerous written sources and eyewitnesses including his own first-hand experience in many of the events he recorded, mark him out as a nearly unrivaled historian of the Roman era. His frequent offhand remarks give us insight into a mind that was brilliant, inquisitive, and disciplined. He remained vigorous and active to the end of his life. 
dying at age 82 after falling from his horse. Although subsequent authors censured him for his inelegant Greek, Dionysius of Holocarnassus wrote that no one has the endurance to reach his history's end, and various modern historians have questioned his objectivity due to his high Roman connections. Polybius remains the gold standard for ancient historians. Besides this, if I may add, he also comes across as a thoroughly likable fellow in his writings. If Polybius was the greatest historian of the Punic Wars, Titus Livius was its greatest writer. Livius, or Livy as he is most often called, comes onto the scene nearly 150 years after Polybius. Born in Patavium, modern Padua, Livy moved to Rome during the time of Augustus and the establishment of the Roman Empire. The later historian Tacitus even reports that Livy became friends with Augustus and his family, even encouraging the future emperor Claudius to take up writing history himself. Doubtless to the annoyance of Polybius, had he been alive, Livy never held any government positions or served in the military instead devoting nearly his entire life to scholarly pursuits. Of these, Livy's greatest work was his Books from the Foundation of the City, a monumental work which covers nearly 700 years of history, from the fall of Troy to the reign of Augustus. Unfortunately, of the staggering 142 books which comprised Livy's original work, only 35 survive in a more or less complete form with excerpts and summaries accounting for a portion of the remainder. Fortunately for us, Livy's account of the Second Punic War has come down to us fully intact, offering nearly a complete picture of the conflict from beginning to end. Where Polybius valued personal experience and fieldwork, Livy preferred to rely on the works of his predecessors rather than do his own investigations. There is little evidence that he traveled extensively, spending most of his life in Rome or his native city of Padua. This predisposition to rely on other sources and lack of real-world experience leads us to find several mistakes or omissions in Livy on various political or military matters, and his descriptions of campaigns and battlefield tactics are sometimes hazy at best. His accuracy is also often called into question at different points where he differs from Polybius, but it is obvious that Livy relied heavily on Polybius's own histories, allowing us to catch a glimpse of Polybius's lost books through the veneer of his successor historian. Even so, Livy clearly did not have as strong a grasp on geography and the minutiae of historical writing as his predecessor Polybius and his factual accuracy suffers at points in his narrative as a result. Besides concerns over accuracy, Livy clearly exhibits a partisan bias on behalf of his beloved Rome. As a proud Roman citizen, Livy demonstrates a deep sense of patriotism and love for his city, which now ruled the world. This patriotism tends to lead him right into the trap that Polybius accuses Pictor of, the tendency to minimize Rome's losses and defeats while simultaneously overemphasizing her victories, as well as a hesitancy to criticize Roman heroes or allies, such as the Numidian king Massinassa. However, 
Livy also exhibits a disarming self-awareness of his own strong feelings, which he periodically inserts into his writings. In fact, Livy begins his history with a frank and endearing admission of his love of country. I hope that my passion for Rome's past has not impaired my judgment, for I do honestly believe that no country has ever been greater or purer than ours, or richer in good citizens and noble deeds. None has been free for so many generations from the vices of avarice and luxury. Nowhere have thrift and plain living been for so long held in such esteem. Indeed, poverty with us went hand in hand with contentment. Livy's love of Rome is only rivaled by his hatred of the Carthaginians and their Hannibal ad portas, Hannibal at the gates. Whether or not it originated with him, Livy's books clearly channel the Roman dread of Hannibal and his efforts to destroy them, and he takes pains to emphasize the Punic faith, i.e. the deceptiveness and cruelty, of Hannibal and his fellow Carthaginians. Yet even Livy's hyper-patriotism could not resist a grudging respect for the greatest of the Carthaginians, for Hannibal dominates Livy's account of the Second Punic War, from beginning to end. With these deficiencies in accuracy and objectivity, why then do we place Livy side by side with Polybius as one of the two great historians of the Punic Wars? The answer is because Livy captures the spirit of the conflict far better than his more fact-minded counterpart. Whatever his merits as a historian, Livy was undoubtedly a great writer and his narrative at points transcends its genre from the historical into the romantic, in the best possible way. It is due to Livy that we have some of the most celebrated and famous images of the Second Punic War, images which I will not detail here due to my wish to avoid spoilers. However, keep an eye out for Livy as the narrative continues, and you will see that where there is a dramatic or moving scene, Livy is often the source. From the start, Livy is adamant that he intends to convey far more than mere facts in his histories. In his preface, he tells us what his purpose is in writing his history, to remind Rome of the virtues and morals which brought her to empire. Like the poets Horace and Virgil, Livy, who had lived through Rome's disastrous civil wars and seen the decay and corruption of the Roman society of his day, cast his eyes back to simpler, nobler times, whether real or imagined, when the Romans had been steady peasant farmers who fought for their own love of country and not for the gold and luxuries of their neighbors. Thus Livy's history highlights the nobility and austerity of the Romans of yore, while simultaneously hinting at the influences which would lead to her modern-day decline, greed, luxury, and impiety. He writes in his first paragraphs, I invite the reader's attention to the much more serious consideration of the kind of lives our ancestors lived, of who were the men, and by what means both in politics and war, by which Rome's power was first acquired and subsequently expanded. I would then have the reader trace the process of our moral decline, to watch first the sinking of the foundations of morality as the old teaching was allowed to lapse then the rapidly increasing disintegration, then the final collapse of the whole edifice, 
and the dark dawning of our modern day, when we can neither endure our vices nor face the remedies needed to cure them. Yet even as Livy ponders the moral decline of his own day, he takes solace in thinking of his Roman heroes of old and the society that made them. He continues by writing, The study of history is the best medicine for a sick mind. For in history you have a record of the infinite variety of human experience plainly set out for all to see. And in that record you can find for yourself and your country both examples and warnings. Find things to take as models, base things rotten through and through, to avoid. Of late years wealth has made us greedy, and self-indulgence has brought us through every form of sensual excess to be if I may so put it, in love with death, both individual and collective. As a quiet, bookish sort of man, who never held any political or military command, and yet was surrounded by power, Livy sought through his histories to contribute a worthy testament to his nation's glory, both moral and tangible. His histories were a reaction and a condemnation of the current state of Roman affairs, as well as a hope that with the ushering in of the Roman Empire under Augustus and the latter's social campaigns to revive the old Roman virtues, Rome might reclaim some of her past greatness. In the Second Punic War, Livy saw his beloved Rome at her moral and political apogee, and he found comfort in memorializing her story for posterity. Unlike Polybius, Livy displays an almost boyish love of Rome that it is hard not to find appealing, and he also expresses a humility which would have been foreign to the outspoken Polybius. Thus he writes in his preface, The task of writing a history of our nation from Rome's earliest days fills me, I confess, with some misgiving, and even were I confident in the value of my work, I should hesitate to say so. I am aware that for historians to make extravagant claims is, and always has been, all too common. Every writer on history tends to look down his nose at his less cultivated predecessors, happily persuaded that he will better them in point of style or bring new facts to light. But however that may be, I shall find satisfaction in contributing, not, I hope, ignobly, to the labor of putting on record the story of the greatest nation in the world. Countless others have written on this theme, and it may be that I shall pass unnoticed amongst them. If so, I must comfort myself with the greatness and splendor of my rivals, whose work will rob my own of recognition. My task, moreover, is an immensely laborious one. I shall have to go back more than 700 years and trace my story from its small beginnings up to these more recent times when its ramifications are so vast that any adequate treatment is hardly possible. I am aware, too, that most readers will take less pleasure in my account of how Rome began in her early history. They will wish to hurry on to more modern times and to read of the period, already a long one, in which the might of an imperial people is beginning to work its own ruin. My own feeling is different. I shall find antiquity a rewarding study if only because, while I am absorbed in it, I shall be able to turn my eyes from the troubles which for so long have tormented the modern world, and to write without any over-anxious consideration which may well plague a writer on contemporary life, even if it does not lead him to conceal the truth. 
To sum up this great Roman writer, Polybius may have been the better historian, but Libby was assuredly the greater artist. Thus in Polybius and Livy, two men separated from each other by temperament as well as time and space, we have the two greatest historians of the Punic Wars. Their works are invaluable to us, not only for the history that they tell us, but also for the reminders they leave to us moderns, who are often hasty to, in the words of Livy, look down our nose at our less cultivated predecessors. In Polybius we are reminded of the genius of the ancients, of their willingness to lay the foundation of historical writing, which we have built upon and improved. From Livy, we receive the sense that history is far more than the mere scientific dissection of dates and dead people. It is a story, a story with a purpose, and a story that both edifies and warns. To the other countless authors mentioned, from Pictor to Appian, we also owe a great debt. For even though they often stray in their writings into errors or exaggerations, our knowledge of the past would be incredibly poor had they never picked up the pen and assumed the risk of making such mistakes. We can also be thankful that they not only wrote their history to be remembered, but that they infused it with such human force and feeling as to make it worth remembering. Thus we close our overview of our sources for the Punic Wars. In the next two episodes, we will briefly cover the Roman and Carthaginian armies which fought across Italy, Spain, and North Africa during the Second Punic War. Be on the lookout for the next episode next week. Until then, take care and read more history.